Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff, and today's show was recorded at Geek Girl Con 2017 in the Seattle Convention Center. We hope you enjoy the show. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuradium, if y'all was uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, bah. Law of definite proportion gaining weight. I'm every element around. So we are at Geek Girl Con, and I ran into one of my favorite people. We actually planned the March for Science together, Bellingham, with two other women. We had a great time, and that was in, it was it, in April. It was in April. Okay, April twentieth, twenty first, something like that. Yeah, and I'm gonna let you say your name properly. Okay. Um, I'm Astrid Amara. Here she is. Yes. <laughs> And you're going to have to figure out who I'm talking about. With our past, we actually have a, a past show where Natalie was there doing interviews at the March for Science. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you are not a scientist, but you are a science enthusiast. And a yes. lot of your work is related to science because you write science fiction. Yes. You um, take care of animals and deal with a lot of their diseases, which is very sciencey. Yes. So let's talk about... Let's talk about the animals first. Okay. And then we'll get into Astrid's writing, writing. career. <laughs> okay. So, um, yes, I help uh, run a goat rescue. It's called Newman Farm Goat uh, Rescue and Sanctuary. Uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization uh, dedicated to finding new homes for animals that have been either neglected or um, have been surrendered by animal control or by owners. A lot of the times people, a lot of people, like most animals, get get animals and don't realize what a what the responsibility will be in long term. They're like, and this so, goat is going to eat my hedge and it And enough. baby goats are probably the cutest things ever. So yeah. everybody loves to get a couple of baby goats and then those baby goats turn into adult goats mm -hmm. and the novelty wears off. Right. So, but, you know, and then we have people who end up having to get rid of their goats for totally other legitimate reasons. They right. have to move. Mm -hmm. um, goats have, you have to have more than one. Um, they're a herd animal. Right. So sometimes oh, will they get like depressed? They'll get very depressed so you can never have one goat. Ooh. So if one of your goats dies, a lot of times they'll bring that second goat to the rescue because they need to find a companion. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of what we do from that aspect. And then the, the sort of science component of that is um, doing a lot in terms of um, parasite management. Mm -hmm. um, there is not really a big field of research uh, on caprines. On caprines? Caprines are um, goats, basically. Okay. Okay. Um, and there's, there's caprines are any of the goat family. Um, and caprine science and sort of veterinary care is a relatively new field. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it is based on livestock management. Um, we are looking at it more from the perspective of um, sort of animal care as pets. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different form of veterinary care. Okay. Um, our focus really is on the health and um, longevity of the animal, not so much the byproduct of the animal, which is what the majority of uh, scientific care has always been focused on, which is you know quality of milk or the quality of meat. Oh, so. okay. And you were telling me, I remember when we were planning the March for Science, you were telling me about like the different kinds of ways goats get sick. 
and how um, you and your mom were dealing with a lot of like learning about diseases, learning yes. about parasites, learning about all these kind of things that can go horribly wrong. So right. tell me about that. So one of the things is uh, just sort of just basic parasite management. Um, we, we started getting really excited because we, we finally got some microscopes at the rescue. Oh, so wow. we're able to do our own fecal samples. Um, oh, and that's right. That's what you're talking yes, about. And I so, was like giggling the whole time. Go yeah, because we're super excited about this um, up till now. And actually at the moment, because our herd is completely either parasite free or we have two, her two uh, members of the herd right now that are being treated. But since everybody else right now is parasite free, we haven't actually had to, to do this. But we have the equipment now so that when we get a large number of new goats in, we'll be able to do our own fecal samples, um, which basically just mean, you know, taking poop samples from goats, that's pretty easy. And, uh, and then analyzing them using pretty basic textbooks to just make sure that um, we can see what they have and then choose the right wormer for them. So we're talking about worms. Yes, predominantly worms. Lots and lots um, we of have worms. lice as well, okay. um, and uh, there's a couple other parasites, but the worms are really the worst ones. Okay, and so what happens when they have these worms? Like, how bad is it for these goats? Um, most goats have, a lot of goats can have a worm load, have a parasite load that's pretty basic and it's not going to be a big problem for them. But of course, like any, any, uh, creature, once the parasite load gets too great, then it's going to start impacting their digestive systems. Um, they're not going to be able to absorb nutrients in quite the same ways. They'll get sick pretty easily, and then it's really hard to turn them around. And the biggest problem is with the really young and older uh, animals that we see, especially the babies. If the babies come in and they have coccidia, um, and we're finding that a lot of the de uh, the dewormers that we have are just not being very effective, and so we're going to have to get more and more advanced um, medicine in order to try and save these babies from dehydration. And, and basically dying from malnutrition because oh, of the worming wow. loads. So, oh my god, exciting stuff! Yeah. Studying goat poop. Yeah, well, I think so. <laughs> well, I mean, I I knew from the grapevine that sheep are very fragile. Like sheep, um, like they they're it's hard to take care of sheep. You know, they get sick, they die. Is that similar to like goats? I mean, do they are, are, are I think they they're somehow? pretty hardy. Okay. I mean, one of the things I'll say about them as a breed is they're pretty, unlike your dogs and cats, they, they need really minimal care. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm not saying that you should get a goat and then put it in the bag field and just leave it there forever because they do yeah. need shelter, clean water, food. Right. But generally speaking, they're pretty hardy animals. They're one of the first domesticated animals. I think they're just mm. after dogs. So wow. um, we've had goats for a really long time and mm. we have learned to breed them in such a way that they are not susceptible to most of the diseases that are out there. But haven't we had sheep for a long time? Like what happened with that? Sheep too. You know, I think sheep can be hardy, but the thing is, you know, I, I'll be honest, I don't really know that much about sheep. We've, yeah. We have sheep at the rescue occasionally, but sheep care is a little bit different. There are a lot of similarities in okay. terms of their hoof care and their diet. Um, those needs are really similar to the goats. Yeah. It's just um, that they do have more of a propensity to have certain different types of, of um, parasites than, mm. than, the, than the goats do. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're going to go to your authorship. And yes. So you, I did not know this about you when we were planning the March for Science, that you are also an author. And we saw you upstairs yes. in the exhibitor booth here at Geek Girl Con, which is like, first of all, have you ever been to Geek Girl Con? This is my fourth year fourth at Geek year. Girl oh Con. God. How have I not seen you, though? I don't know. And I've been on panels for the last three oh, years. I don't go to so panels, that's sorry. probably why. I'm I've usually at 
I'm usually in panels, so it's okay. this is fun. This is the first time. Oh no, that's not true. I, this is only the second time that I've been as was part of the exhibitors. Okay. Um, working with Blind Eye Books, which is a publisher of LGBT science fiction fantasy, and then they have a separate press called One Block Empire, which does um, LGBT mysteries. Tell us about your first novel ever, and then tell us about your other like your stories. Yeah. yeah. So the first book I wrote is called The Archer's Heart, and it was a fantasy novel based off of the Mahabharata, which is a Indian epic. Right. And so really with that story, the Indian epic of the Mahabharata is an amazing story. It's got magic, it's got horses, it's got battles, it's got class warfare, you have religion in there, you have so many different elements and it just seemed to lend itself naturally to writing a fantasy story. And for me, I'm really interested in the stories of minorities and groups that are typically not represented in science fiction fantasy, which is not true anymore. But, you know, go well, back 15 better. years ago, and yeah, there wasn't that much. I yeah. mean, it would be hard to find a good gay fantasy novel. And now there's a lot of them. But um, So that was sort of the impetus for writing The Archer's Heart, which is, it was a story that I really loved, and I wanted to tell it as a romance. So it's a romance between um, an archer and, um, and his second cousin, who is sort of a magician of sorts. And so, and it was a it was a semi-finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in the year that it was published in 2008. So, yeah. um, did really great. That is awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. So, okay. So that was your first sci-fi. Yeah. What, I'm sorry. That was your first fantasy novel. Yeah. What about sci-fi? And what made you want to get into something that's kind of more sciencey? Well, I love reading science fiction. I, I think science fiction um, allows you to explore the boundaries of not only the real world, but it gives you a chance just from a from a storytelling point of view to take things to extremes. So rather than say, oh, I just had this bad day because you know, I failed this test. You can say, oh, I had this bad day because the planet exploded. Right. And so fault. it's way more dramatic and more fun. So the most recent pure science fiction story I wrote, Song of the Navigator, which has to do with space travel and colonization and has a lot to do with uh, minorities in colonies and being sort of controlled by corporate enterprises. So a lot of politics get into that story. And then I did just also write a, um, a science fiction story about sort of brainwashed assassins in a, in a satellite colony. So... Lots of fun stuff there. Oh, wow. All with And all with a romantic twist because ultimately I like almost all of my stories to have some sort of love interest in it. Yeah. So it's typically, you know, either two soldiers or two guys of some sort fallen in Is love. Is it always guys? For me, yes. <laughs> For me? I write yes. what I like to read. <laughs> right. And I think that, you know, there's it's interesting. So there's a whole genre of writing that's called MM romance. Mm -hmm. And what it is is basically LGBTQ fiction, um, but a lot of it is written for straight women. And it's an interesting offshoot of gay fiction right. um, and has really kind of grown in terms of the market. Whereas there's like anime for that too, right? There's I mean, absolutely I, Yahweh. Talking, yeah, Yahweh. I mean, yeah. so it, and it's an offshoot. I mean, that's how I got involved in this also. I mean, yeah. I was a Yahweh lover and consumer long before I ever started writing gay romance. Right. And it was Yahweh that kind of woke me up to that world and how much I loved it. Do you have any like advisors or do you like research the science in any of your sci-fi novels? Like how do you go about that? 
I typically do as much research as I can. If there's something that I can't figure out through inquiries of asking, I use forums a lot online and do a lot of book reading research. That's kind of the fun part of basing something in reality or Mm -hmm. in history. And if I can't figure it out that way, then I will make it up. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty also of science fiction and fantasy is that I can't make up the science if it's going to be science fiction, but I can change the parameters of the world that I'm in to to basically make it work. Like if, you know, I had this one problem where I had a planet and, you know, Song of the Navigator, it's a carbon dioxide planet. Everyone who lives there has been genetically modified to be able to breathe carbon dioxide. So they have sort of like a a plant lining in their lungs. Mm. And so, you know, I had this real problem because I was like, what kind of vehicles are they going to be using? Because obviously it's not going to be a combustible engine. Uh, You know, it's like, so, you know, this was a real challenge for me, like to have to ask scientists and be like, okay, if if you were going to create a vehicle that was going to run on a carbon dioxide planet, how would it function for you? You're like, solar done. (laughs) Hey, that would, that would have worked. That's not what they you ended up coming up with. Talk I, to me. I didn't know you then, but now I do. <laughs> now I have a, a source. Solar totally can work. What's Wave interesting point. to me is also what would the Earth like? Right. Like the main character, he's you know an oxygen breather. He's he's not from the planet. It's and like Romeo and Juliet. And he has to come there, so he has to wear like a mouthpiece in order to like live there. How do you make out with a mouthpiece? The, the, it's a nose piece, so oh. and then it goes on the corner of the mouth so that it doesn't interfere with the necking. Like okay. that was by design. It's a romance novel. It's got, I just, exact, no, that's the first thing you have to figure out. Yeah. But I was really also thinking like, how would things taste? Like if you were breathing in a carton, mm-hmm. wouldn't would that add like a sour taste to the earth or atmosphere? What would water taste like while you're drinking water in a carbon dioxide environment? You know, I don't that's know. That's kind of the fun part to think about. Like, what yeah. would that be like? Is do you have any science? Like, I, I asked this to my guests. Is there any like part of yourself that really loves a certain kind of science that you're really geeky about some science? I know that's not what you do for right. your for your living, but is there something that you like really like? I'm a big fan of weird biology. Mm. Um, I think that things like molds are really fascinating. Penicillin. Yes, slime molds that move. I think the sort of weird half biological elements of the world, I mean, even things like lichen are really fascinating to me. And so that's kind of the scientific stories that I'm most intrigued by are discovering really weird parasites, strange life forms that don't really fit in any of the boxes that we have Mm. for, you know, like things that you couldn't really describe by saying animal, vegetable, or mineral. Yeah. Like, you know, those kind of outside-the-box parts of the world, I think, are the most fascinating for me. So. Awesome. Well, thank you for talking Yeah, to have fun, guys. At yeah. GeekGirlCon, it's such a great crowd. It is. Thank you so much. Yeah. GeekGirlCon for the third year in a row and we're interviewing other scientists and we're talking about what they do, how like how they what they're doing here at GeekGirlCon, how do they make science accessible. So I'm here with, and I'm going to let you say your whole name sure. yourself. <laughs> I am uh, Dr. Nicole Gallucci. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Noisy Astronomer. Um, I am an astronomer and a physics professor in New Hampshire at St. Anselm College. So we were just discussing the long flight length from here <laughs> to yeah. here from, uh, drove down to Boston to fly out here. Yeah. Um, and I, my background is in radio astronomy. I helped build uh, radio telescopes looking at for hydrogen in the early universe. 
Oh, awesome. <laughs> and then uh, my postdoc, I actually did more science education stuff. So I worked with a citizen science project called CosmoQuest. Yes. Where you, oh, you've heard of this. I, th I awesome. mean, I've heard of all the yes. well, yeah, all the citizen science. All the citizen science that is a lot of astronomy, right? Yes. On like Zooniverse. We have yes, Zooniverse. Um, Galaxy Zoo is one of the first ones, and and uh, astronomy is really good at taking lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of data, mm -hmm. images, spectra, things that have to be looked at often still by humans because the computers don't do a terribly good job of seeing things like faint old eroded craters on, on the moon, for example. So right. it was one of the projects that we had. Um, so I worked with that and I'm still working, finishing up a paper about what motivates citizen scientists to like spend hours of their free time helping us do science. Um, what actually motivates them and what keeps them going. Um, and now I'm a professor, so I'm teaching full-time. Uh, I have an astronomy, intro astronomy class. We're building a new astronomy minor, hoping to have an astronomy major coming soon within wow. our physics department. Is there anyone who does citizen science, um, I would say any citizen science that you know in the Northwest? There's a professional organization, the Citizen Science Association, so lots of scientists who run projects are part of that group, too. It's a good way to find people. And yeah. for, for our listeners, if you want to do some science mm -hmm. and, you know, you're not necessarily yeah. a science major or not a postdoc or not right. a, you know, PhD scientist, you can do that. Yeah, go to SciStarter. You can pick out, um, there are things you can do by grade level if you want to involve your children. Things you can do outdoors, things you can do indoors at the computer. There's just a whole wide range. There's a lot, lot of data out there still to be processed and collected, which uh, people can help with. And what's really nice, um, not necessarily for astronomy, but for, for some other projects, is you get local knowledge, right? You get people who are knowledgeable about their local habitat, their local natural environment. We don't have any right. Martians, unfortunately, helping right. us with citizen science in astronomy, but right. <laughs> we do have some astronomy enthusiasts who are very familiar with looking at galaxies and stuff that can help out. So you're you're talking more about like the environmental science. There's a yeah, lot of like there's a lot of projects. water taste uh, testing, not tasting water <laughs> water testing. Don't eat the science. Yeah, observation of certain <laughs> yeah. animals that are around. Yeah. That Looking, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of that. I think there's one called Dolphin Watch, Ooh. and it's in it's in um, Australia, and it's like if you're at a river and you suddenly see a dolphin in your river, yeah, you like, gotta let take us that. know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but so I wanted to talk to you also about you have a humongous Twitter following. Like you have like seventeen point eight. We just looked. Oh my god. Um, thousand followers, <laughs> and our listeners can't see you, but you are fairly young. Yes. And uh, you, um, when did you get your PhD? And like, how did that happen? Oh. Where you became this science communicator? Um, uh, our show would like to know too. Our, like, how do you do well, that? part of it was procrastinating in grad school, so maybe don't do that. Mm. Uh, <laughs> finish there was <laughs> I did finish but yeah. it, yes uh, so I was um, I actually started Twitter in grad school because it was this like newish thing um, and I was uh, trying to do some science blogging just for fun on the side um, and since I was a grad student astronomy at University of Virginia I got to hang out with um, Phil Plate, the bat astronomer, so he's oh, a huge following. Right. So we so we met and we reminisced over, oh, is this professor still there? Is that professor still there? Because mm. that was where he got his PhD. Got it. So we became friends. And then when somebody like Phil starts retweeting you, all of a sudden you start to get a lot of followers. Got so um, so make famous friends. Yes, make famous friends. Okay. <laughs> I can say that. Um, but yeah, so I, I did that for a little while, um, just some blogging on the side, and then 
Um, I worked for a few years as a freelance blogger for Discovery Channel, okay. their, their science blogs. Um, again, somebody I met through, in fact, we've still never met in person. I worked for him for four years and wow. we've still never met in person. Ian O'Neill, who's also a, a PhD astronomer, um, was running the site at the time and hired me on for a little bit as a freelance writer. So I, I discovered in grad school because we all had to do outreach, a little bit of outreach as part of our program in addition to our research, um, that I loved, loved doing outreach and I wanted to get better at it and, and that I love teaching and my outreach makes my teaching better and vice versa. So um, yeah, I've kind of looked for you know opportunities whenever they come up to do that. My question is, what what is your favorite thing to write about? Because mm. you, you're saying that you you do these the science yeah. writing, you do this blogging, but like for our listeners, what is actually you know your favorite thing? But also, what actually gets the most traction? Yeah, what gets the most traction um, is not always my favorite thing to write about. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of my favorite things is black holes, and if you put black hole, talk about black holes, that's always good. Black holes, exoplanets. Uh, you know, looking for planets around other stars, looking for Earth-like planets around other stars, those always get big hits. Gravitational waves, that's a current hot one right now. Right. I think they've mm -hmm. just discovered the third gravitational wave source. They officially have enough for a catalog. Right. <laughs> you have three. Yes. Um, well, three is a lot. You three know. is a lot. Three is a lot when we had zero just yeah. a few years ago. Um, my favorite things to write about, though, are... I haven't had time to do this in the last few years, but um, when I was in grad school, I would pick out papers that I thought were interesting that had come up um, like scientific papers but that didn't have any press release with them and my, my favorite topic is always radio astronomy um, we're going to be launching a blog soon um, with help from the National Radio Astronomy Observatory um, the very large array which is this why this isn't working on audio I'm waving my She's arms waving her arms in, in a, a y shape. funnel shape yes this like, is like YMCA yes I'm YMCA because yes. the very large array is a y-shaped array of antennas in New Mexico right and they've just started a new sky survey um, so we are planning a series of blog posts about the survey from scientists working on the survey working with the data um, but also, again, making sure that it's not so jargon heavy that you know someone right. just with an interest can can read it and, and understand right. what's going on. Um, so I like the behind the scenes, you know, how stuff gets done stories. So what's your field then in radio astronomy that mm -hmm. you want to look at? Because there are many things you can sure. look at in the universe with a radio telescope. Sure. But what would you, what do you like looking at? So my favorite thing to do, which I haven't done in a while, is using uh, an array of telescopes called the Very Long Baseline Array. It's 10 identical telescopes spread across North America and using them to look at the regions super close to supermassive black holes. So these little tiny, or they're not tiny, these huge radio jets, but even the huge ones have tiny versions of themselves. Right. Um, so that was something I did a few years ago, is looking at these tiny ones, um, because it's possible that they had only just turned on in the last few thousand years. And, that well, and that's a very short time. That's a very short time that's astronomically. Yeah. Um, what I shifted to working on now, because it's something I want my students to, to get more involved in, there's a radio telescope um, just 40 minutes from us um, run by MIT. Okay. Um, they do more um, astrochemistry, so looking at molecules and gas clouds and star-forming regions, places where stars are dying. Um, so because you can really get hands-on uh, experience with that telescope, I'm uh, getting a little bit more into that because I had a student uh, last year who worked with me, a chemistry major, who was like, yeah. I want to do astronomy too. And, uh, you and know, there's a lot of things they can that. do. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, what about like Arecibo and stuff? Mm. Have, have you ever been there? And like, I have not been yeah. to Arecibo. That is on my bucket list. Uh, yeah. I do have a good friend who's a postdoc there um, named Kristen Jones. We've been keeping track of them um, right. thanks to ham radio operators. I mean, they were the first people to get messages off the island about who was where. Right. Um, this so is we, in Puerto Rico. Yes, this is in Puerto for Rico. For our listeners, Sorry, yes. Yeah, and 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 the this this may not air super soon. Okay. So, Remember when there was a hurricane and yeah. horrible devastation? Yeah. I actually just heard an NPR story about this ham radio operator, and he, you know, he's sitting there and he suddenly gets these messages yep. and he starts calling people on the mainland yep. for people um, in Puerto Rico because all the lines are down. That's where we first heard about uh, a, a guy in Pennsylvania who's a ham radio operator. You know, got Kristen's yep. mom's number and yep. called the mom, and the mom posted on Facebook to tell everybody. It might be the same guy. The only way. I yeah. heard he was in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah that might be him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So we've been, you know, getting messages back and forth. Um, they are, you know, doing okay. I mean, it sounds like they're doing well on the site. Um, but yeah, that that's a that's an issue under development. Um, but that's one I haven't visited. And now that I have a friend who works there, I keep meaning to visit. But yeah, time is always time You're and money. You're on the money. east coast, right? So I'm soon. on the east coast, so it's, it's not too far. But yeah, time yeah. and money are always tight. So yeah, definitely. So as a science communicator, you're trying to go out there, you're trying to have people interested in astronomy, mm -hmm. and then the less sexy part of astronomy, radio astronomy. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know, but I see that you're at Dragon Con, you're here at Geek Girl Con, so mm -hmm. what's, what's like, What's the reason you want to do that? Like, what's the drive that you want to come to these cons as a scientist? Like, what, uh -huh. yeah, what's the benefit? I mean, part of it is I'm a big nerd and I like <laughs> going too. to cons anyway. I mean, you're actually in cosplay. I'm not I, in cosplay this I week. am. <laughs> I, I'm like, what do you mean, nerds? I what don't do understand. Mean? I don't understand this. Yeah. <laughs> I started going to Dragon Con just as a nerd and then they were doing all this science and space programming. And mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, so it's a, you know, science fiction fantasy fans aren't necessarily like, into science, but they're really easy to hook into science if they have an interest in science fiction. I feel like, like they space have space battles, right? Yeah, I feel like they have like there's a part of their brain yeah. that's like I love science, and yeah. then it's like caged by fear and intimidation. Yeah, and if yeah. they can just open that cage, yeah. that's what I would like to do. Yeah, and when I was working with CosmoQuest, we used to set up a booth where people could come out and try the Citizen Science website. Mm -hmm. um, so we would like steal people who were like waiting in line for you know autographs. For, from celebrities. Right. Actually, I was into science before I was into science fiction. I had a very Whoa. science fiction deprived childhood. Mm. <laughs> it I mean, I was friends older. like you. It's yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it took me a long time to like realize all that was out there, but now I'm a total yeah. geek. Um, and so it's part, I see it as I'm one of the people at the con too. Yeah. Uh, these are my people too. Right. You know, I'm a big dork. Um, but if I can bring that extra, here's some cool science stuff you haven't heard of before. Right. That's like super bonus. And you're down at the DIY zone. So yes, last year and the year before we came here and we spent a lot of time just like my daughter, she's eight, <gasps> almost nine. She's around here with my friend and her friend. But they, I mean, spent almost all day at the DIY yeah. zone. And basically there's, I would say, I don't know how big that, an area. I don't, know. I don't know. Basically, like... It's a lot bigger than it was when we started. Yeah, I can say that. Like it's a two, lot bigger. Two giant classrooms yeah. of just tables of people doing science and mm -hmm. kids getting to take home, yep. like, knowledge in their brains, but also physical things. Yeah. It's amazing. So what is your booth? So we're making solar system bracelets. Um, I simplified it as much as possible. We have these little plastic pony beads. But yeah, so we use the black ones as spacers and basically the ones, you know, the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, they're all spaced out. I even have Pluto. 
I like Pluto and I like my series because dwarf planets are cool too. Yeah. Um, so we've got, yeah, kids making solar system bracelets. Um, the one that does the sun um, reacts under ultraviolet light, oh, changes color, glowing. glows in the dark. dark. Yeah, oh, so, that's, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Brilliant. So I was super excited they had those on hand. I'm like, oh yes, I want those. That's yeah. the sun, that's the sun. Um, so yeah, so, so we have, um, since these are not, you know, accurate scale model, I do have an accurate scale model of the sun and earth. Um, so the sun is a three inch like stress ball mm -hmm. and the earth is like a tip of a matchstick that's painted blue oh. and they're 26 feet apart. Awesome. That is our scale model for the actual size and distance of things in the solar system. So just to give, give you an idea of how much empty space is in space. Right. Yeah. Did you ever do the... Um Double AS ambassadors that um, I the, did. So did I. So wait, they, really? Yeah, with the the paper. The paper. We did that here a couple years ago. So yeah, I, I did the one. I was in Seattle. Yeah, the Seattle um AAS okay. ambassadors. Yeah, I it did was not go like two thousand fourteen. Okay, 13, something like that. Okay. Anyway, but. We had done the, the strips of paper, and then they told us the joke where you have the strips of paper, and you, and you ask them, what planet do you think if, if Pluto is at one end of the piece, um, piece of paper? And, and it's your height. The, and the it's your piece height. of paper is the height of you. Right. So yeah. the sun is at the top of your head, and the Pluto's at your feet. What planet do you think is going to be right in the middle? And, you know, people go, I don't know, you know, yeah. Mars, I don't know. And yeah, then Jupiter... And uh, I will let you tell the punchline. Well, it's 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 uh, it's Uranus because it's right in the middle. It's, it's right. right where your butt is. And it's, I think I, I was will never forget harder that. than any other adult. And they were like, <laughs> it's it's not that funny. I'm like, okay, no, we it's were, funny. We were clearly not in the same group then because I also lost it when <laughs> right. they did that. I was so People excited. People were like chuckling. I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever yes, heard. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm we child. did we did that one here um, a few years ago. We had okay. little stickers for the planets and. So, they went home with those pocket solar Kids systems. Kids love it. Yeah. Kids love it. Except for the serious ones that are like, that's not funny. I'm like, well, then obviously you have no <laughs> sense of humor. I did want to ask, so like you're saying that you became a geek later in life. Yeah. And I was very much like, you know, Batman animated series, Star Trek ne Next Generation as like a tween, you know. Yeah. But I'm wondering, what is your favorite geekdom, though? It doesn't have to be science-related. It was like, the X-Files. Oh, yeah. That was the first science fiction thing I discovered. Mm. And that's what got me hooked. Um, and it, it literally wasn't until I was in grad school I finally, like, caught on to, like, Star Trek. And, right. And all, like, the normal things every yeah. all my friends grew up on. What um, about Contact, since you're a radio astronomer? Oh, that I'm sure actually... everyone has asked you. That got, that's what got me into astronomy. Are there representations of astronomy and astronomers in pop culture that you don't like um, or ones more that you do like because that's kind of yeah. the last question I always ask people yeah. just how are we represented in, in pop culture and is that good is it bad where can we change yeah you know, what can we build on so I, you know, I have mixed feelings about Big Bang Theory for example Me like too. early on I was like yay it's us and then I was like okay this is a little old it's like the mm -hmm. same old jokes and there were, no, there, there were no characters until later on that reflected the women around me. Um, or people of color. Or people of color. Or they have accents. Yes. They all have accents. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, that sometimes I can reference things in there because, like, Cuth or Polly will actually be doing something that's relevant to something I've done um, as an astronomer. Right. But I shooting think, the moon was really cool. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, but I think... And none of them teach either, and I teaching is my main responsibility, right. so they're not teaching professors. So yeah, I think I think Ellie Arroway might be my favorite representation of an astronomer, and yeah. that being written by Carl Sagan, who was an astronomer, um, what about probably Thor's helps girlfriend, with that. Natalie Portman? I, I 
you know, I don't know. You don't see her doing a lot of astronomy, though. No, but she's chasing chasing down storms because that's what astronomers do. Yeah, I don't. We run away from storms. <laughs> I run it's away like, from storms. Like twisters. Yeah. Like she's, meteorology. I see her more as a theoretical physicist. Yeah. You know, which I am crap at that kind of stuff so mm. I don't I don't identify with that as much but I did dress up as her um, I have a friend <laughs> you're like but I did but I still did the costume <laughs> like the blue dress with the one boob armor my friend like made armor for me and what? it was fabulous yes my friend uh, Ryan Consul who's an engineer up in Canada uh, made me some nice armor so yeah wow. <laughs> I was like yeah well I want to say it. thank you so much thank you My name is Christy Reddick. And I'm Jessica Honecker. And we are the Bug Chicks. We are entomologists who teach about insects and spiders in really fun and interesting ways. Mm -hmm. So what did you guys do today at your booth? The first setup we had was with our live animals and it was uh, interactive, hands-on. Um, kids could hold and pet and touch the different animals that we brought. Then we had a microscope set up, kind of like an old school lab, where we had all of these digital microscopes from Celestron. We had some dead specimens up on pins and we, we had some of our computers hooked up to the microscope so people could see them on a larger screen. And we did that. And when you asked what we did here today, what I really wanted to say was we changed lives, Tori. We changed minds. We changed hearts. We changed hearts. Because re what we really do with insects and spiders is we teach people to be brave. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about being brave about holding a caterpillar or looking at a tarantula. It's about having a unique bravery with yourself and the way that you interact with the world. Dr. Rochelle Burks, and she is one of the, or the creator, I don't know what the. She is the creator of the DIY Science Zone, yes. which is amazing. Every single year we've been here, it has been phenomenal. There, Thank it's you. gotten bigger and bigger. It has gotten and bigger. Closer and closer to the registration. Yes. And, and more and more lasers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I just want to say that it's been amazing. So I'm, I'm welcome to our show. And I thank you. I'm so excited to start our conversation. Awesome. So first of all, you are a chemist. Yes. But we always start our in interviews with like origin stories. And since we're at a comic con, what is your origin story to become a <laughs> the great scientist that you are? <laughs> the great science communicator you are as well. I never wanted to be a scientist, okay. quite honestly, when I was little. I wanted to be a lawyer. I was like, like the Alex P. <laughs> Keaton kid, like I have a little briefcase, yeah. and I went to the law library on the weekend, <laughs> and I was like reading law books and like learning about collateral estoppel. Wow. So I was a delight. So I wanted to do that, and then I went to a, a junior high, I went to um, a trip to D.C., and, which, of course, if you want to be a lawyer, that's like, that's yeah. like your, that's an awesome trip, that's right? That's the mothership. That's a mothership. For, but when I was there, uh, they, we had a chance to um, tour the FBI office. <gasps> and at the time, at the time, they had, you know, a couple scientists, you know, a forensic scientist. And I was like, that's so cool. And that's really what got me interested in science. Because before then, I just literally did not care. 
I'm like, so what? We can go to space. Like, nothing's in space. Who cares? And for our listeners, like, <laughs> she is wearing a hidden figure shirt. Uh, yeah. So, so my appreciation irony. has changed, right? I think it was, I just didn't see the usefulness of it. I didn't see what the application was. I didn't know any scientists that looked like me. They were all like old white guys with crazy hair. So I just didn't see the point. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why? Like, why are we spending all this money to go to space? Like, we got problems on Earth. I was, again, I was a delight as a child. Yeah. And so, but then You wanted once, to be a lawyer. <laughs> right. So that tells you, you a lot. To, you wanted to be a lawyer to like help, help people, people. Right. Yeah, I'm and getting so, this now. <laughs> so then when I got, you know, once you get into science and you, you have a little bit better perspective on what it is and, and what you can do mm-hmm. and the power of it, then that totally changed my worldview. It changed what I wanted to do for a career. Yeah. And so, I mean, and it all happened because of a school trip in the seventh grade. And, and I like how you were like... Eighth grade, sorry, eighth grade. Yeah, I didn't want to be a scientist. It it changed later in life, but you meant eighth grade later in life? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, sometimes scientists, you know, they're like, I knew I wanted to be a scientist since I toddled out of my crib. Yeah. And that's not me. I will actually (laughs) let our listeners and let you feel better that I've interviewed probably over 100 scientists now, and the majority do not know. When, as they were babies, like the oh, majority good. are like, okay. I found this in college even. Oh, when you okay. were eighth grade, you were one of the earlier ones. <laughs> so, so I think I'm hanging out with the, I'm hanging out with some real dorks then. Yeah, I think that's you what are. <laughs> I, I think media and sometimes our academia is skewed. Yes, you know? and I think people do probably do a bit of revisionist history. They get younger each 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 time they're asked. <laughs> they sha- they shave the off. Womb. Yeah. They shave off five years each yeah. time they're asked. Right, right. Uh, but no, for me it was definitely just it was it was junior Forensics. high. Yeah, and so I did that, and I worked in a crime lab for a couple years. <gasps> and, Where? Uh, actually, in Oregon. Oh wow. Then I did that. Then I decided that I missed research and teaching, and so decided to go back into academia. And now I'm a professor. Yeah, so where did you get your PhD, and like, what was so, that path like? Because you're eighth grade, you're like, yeah. I'm gonna be a scientist. And then there is the whole trip to get to that. I know. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Um, So I have a bachelor's in chemistry, a master's in forensic science, and a PhD in chemistry. So I got my PhD from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Go Big Red! Yeah. They have have a really amazing, I'm going to say this for our listeners, they have an amazing interactive astronomy website with all the the simulations that you can play with and quizzes. They have great, yeah, and so went there and... and so it's a great chemistry department. <laughs> and well, they've got great physics yeah. and their astronomy. They got a great observatory. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually too it was in grad school when I started doing a lot of science writing. Mm-hmm. So when I was in grad school, I did an internship with Chemical and Engineering News, which is the magazine of the American Chemical Society. Cool. And then I was writing, I wrote, you know, a couple pieces for like the local paper. I started doing blogging. Mm-hmm. So um, that's really kind of where I got my start doing writing and then going on and doing more blog posts and I've, I've always been a nerd everyone in my family's a nerd you know they're trekkies yeah for the most what, part they love gen, star wars but they're also, we're talking hardcore trekkie we're talking all oh, the treks all the treks yeah and they're very we're very excited about of course discovery yeah so i've always we're big pop culture we love zombies yeah we love 
ridiculous like sci-fi horror like giant lobsters from space yeah um and so that's really like the love of of trying to explain that and being like yeah that wouldn't work but that's super funny yeah you can't get lobsters that big well as a a chemist i mean you're not a biologist but you understand that realm like the idea of zombies in nature right like that 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 infectious thing that goes into ants and then it shoots out of their their heads yeah i mean there are you know and and it's funny because we did a a, so i do the sci-pop talks i started that at at unl um five years ago what's uh, sci-pop talks no unl oh unl sorry so when i went back in academia i ended up doing a postdoc at crete in crete nebraska which is half hour from lincoln and then we started a talk series called sci-pop talks so it's science the intersection of science and pop culture and what the i did a a chemistry of the zombie apocalypse Mm -hmm. And there are many problems, obviously, with zombies and vampires, right? right. I mean, numerous oh, pe- problems, scientific don't, problems. People don't like to combine zombies and vampires. No, I mean, that in itself is already going to get yelled we at. Had, well, we had a debate. <laughs> Another <laughs> professor and I did a debate of zombies versus vampires. But, you know, neither one of them is feasible. Right. As, as written. Yeah. But, okay, what are some ways we can come close? So, of right. course, like, actually, rabies would do the trick for both. You could, wow. But, you know, if you had a combination of leprosy, right, and say necrotizing fasciolitis what is and that? rabies. Necrotizing That's the flesh eating disease. Got it, okay. So if you had a combination of all of those things, you're not gonna be around for very long. Well, <laughs> and there's there's a culture thing too. So we I remember as a, as a science major, cause we're giant geeks, we'd start arguing about this idea of zombies and vampires, but regional and cultural and how it's different in each culture. So it like is. we were talking yeah. about mummies versus zombies yes. versus Vampires in in China and Asia, they they're not they're more like zombies. So there's Chinese vampires. They wear all yellow and they hop. So they hop and their arms are out, like so, um, and okay. their arms are horizontal, not up and out, yeah. forward and out. Yeah. And they don't suck blood. They suck your breath. So they they're okay. blind and they can't see you. They can hear you breathe. Okay. So like, and my Natalie, the chief engineer, is making faces. She's like, this is terrifying. <laughs> So when I was a kid, my mom would be like, my mom's from Taiwan, she'd be like, okay, so if there's a a vampire coming at you, a Chinese vampire, you know, they hop, they're hopping at you, but they're very fast. They can catch you very fast. So you hold your breath and you run. And and I'm like, oh my God, that's terrifying. Because as you're running, how are you going to hold your breath? Like, that's that's very thing, hard, right? right? And so, but it's not a blood thing. It's like a it's like a chi, like sucking yes. your soul, your essence. And there are these things called trip. There are these trip blocks in in China. And if you go over to a house, there's this like raised area where you trip over it. That's so like ghosts and spirits and the yeah. and the vampires they fall over that. Well, see, I think they could hop over it, I guess, but I don't think they're that coordinated. I think the interesting part too is that you know mummies tend to be more mystical, magical, right? right? But then even you know, depending on where you're talking about vampirism, right, or even zombieism, it could right. be tied to Science. some kind of mystical religious, oh yeah, you know, something in yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, and so mainly though, it's like you know, zombies. There's something about it, it's a visceral reaction for people, yeah. right? But even so, the, the, the chemistry thing that I wrote was, you know, in The Walking Dead, they had this whole thing that, you know, you kind of use zombies, because how do zombies know that you're not, they have no upper brain function. How do they recognize that you're not a zombie? A zombie. And, you know, there's a good scene, actually, in the show where they kind of crowdsource a solution. They're like, well, you, you don't smell like you're dead. And, and so you don't walk like you're, you know, so basically they came up with, right, zombie 
camouflage where they mm -hmm. go out, get a corpse, and then like coat themselves and all that, right? Right. Well, as a chemist, I'm like, come on now, that's not scalable. Yeah. So I made a synthetic, uh, like a thought experiment about, okay, what chemicals would I need to put together to make just a sprayable, mm -hmm. you know, mass-produced cologne? Right. And so it was a couple chemicals, and we made a little video about it. Um, and so that was um, that was really popular. And so that was putrescine, cadaverine, and cadaverine um, hydro. <laughs> yeah. And they stink. I mean, they smell. Well, they they smell like their names. And so. So you're you, saying it wouldn't be scalable? Like you wouldn't get enough on you to really make somebody believe? It no, really no, no, no. When I say scalable, I mean if you if you're gonna need a corpse each time. Oh, okay, got it. That's not scalable in the idea of if we're gonna need, if everyone's gonna need to have their own bottle got it, or their got own it. repellent. Okay, okay. Having okay. to retrieve first of all, it's a biological hazard, right? Just to actually because you might like, get zombieism or just whatever that. More importantly, whatever other diseases that person had. On the other hand, if you're like, okay, horde of zombies, potentially Hep C. Yeah. Let's just do it, right? And Let's so that's fine, you know. But you can just do a cologne, yeah, and then it's synthetic. You can make as much as you want because um, there is actually just some really great papers. But there's a, actually you can modify E. coli so that they can produce putrescine and cadaverine and sulfohydrol and their gases, and they just basically fart them out. E. coli in, farting in big out big tanks. And then you just you just put them in a big tank, and then you just collect it all in a gas, and you can make whole bottles of the stuff. This is amazing. So I, sorry I cut you off early when I said <laughs> science, because I, I I was thinking you were going saying that like depending on what culture you're in, the thing is more mystical than not. Like if you're talking about you know um, zombie apocalypse movies and stuff that come out recently in the last like 20 years out of like they're definitely England. more science based. They're, yeah, and in, in some the kind US. of virus or thing right. has gone wrong. There's some kind right. of intentional contamination. But if you look at our American zombie movies from like the 20s, oh, or, they're total. Well, whatever, whenever movies curse. came out. Sorry, listeners. It's either it's nuclear. Curse. Right. The other right. one is you know that right. It, a lot of sci-fi always also mimics what is the socio-political right. thing. And right. there's a lot of class movies where it was all, everything was like a nuclear accident. Mm -hmm. Nuclear accident, zombies. Mm -hmm. Nuclear accident, giant lobsters. Right. Nuclear accident, Godzilla. 50 foot woman, right? Or Godzilla. Like yeah. something happens and then like this horrible monster thing happens oh. along with it. Right. And that's, in fact, when you look at a sci-fi channel movie, which I love, because they're so awful. <laughs> right. That they are, they're so awful they swung back around to being awesome again. Right. That plot of that is always, I'd say at least 85% of the time, scientist was trying to invent something or solve something. Of course it goes horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And either a giant shark or a python squid hybrid mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or something is let loose. <laughs> or like, I don't know, tarantulas that spew lava. I don't know, something right. like that. And I think that's actually a real one, actually. Wait, wait, tarantula. <laughs> I think that's I'm, actually lava I tarantula. I don't know why. That is it. That is actually what it's called. So, as soon as you <laughs> said, said that, an image came into my head like that I've seen before. Oh my God. I think Lava you're right. tarantula. That, I think I, and you're right. I think there's a sequel. But I, what I love, too, about the sci fi movies is that no matter how good or how bad, it always gives you a way to talk about science. Yes. Either it's because it's just completely impossible, or sometimes yeah. the science is actually true. Yeah. In some way. In like, some way. And so to me, it's a really fun way that you know you can bring up a lot of topics and talk about science in a more fun way than just like, look at this textbook, awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, you need to like shake up the lecture a little bit. So yeah. So you are you teach now? Yes. So you teach where do you teach? I'm at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. Okay. Oh wow. Yeah. But I wanted to say that we actually had a whole bunch of cultural and uh, medical anthropologists on the show. Oh, cool. And we started talking about disaster movies and what does that say about humans and how humans interact in those movies. Who Who's the good guy? Who's the bad yeah. guy? Who do you save? Who do you don't save in those disaster movies? Well, you know, the what reason, that says about society. I think the thing with zombie movies or, or any monster movie, especially zombieism, is that you could have it not be zombies mm-hmm. and have it be, say, Hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. or Hurricane Harvey or Irma. And, or Maria now. Or Maria. And the thing is, is that what's more interesting than the zombies, because quite honestly, we've seen all the zombies. There's no new zombie. We've mm-hmm. seen fast zombies. We've seen Maria or slow zombies. We've seen every in- incarnation in between. The most interesting thing is how quickly humans turn on each other. Mm-hmm. Or, or how quickly they don't. And in what ways they form new communities. I remember reading uh, a study about someone who is unemployed for, for more than a year. So this was during, you know, the recession and everything. Right, and right, right. If you're unemployed for more than a year, that uncertainty, what that does to you, it is actually the same kind of depression, the same kind of mental um, stress that uh, a death in the family, I think it was like up to two years, like it's like somebody close to you died. That's what that uncertainty, that kind of depression will do to you. And if people can read that article and they relate to it and be like, yeah, I can see that, you know, not having a job, not knowing how you're going to pay your bills, not having stability. Think about being a person in this country and having to deal with that kind of stress, either be it economic, be it racial um, profiling, be it, you know, gender, be it any kind of discrimination that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. That's your whole life. That's not just two years of uncertainty. So I, I try to, like, relate that to people, be like, death in the family after two years versus like 30 years yeah. of having to deal with stuff like that. Again, it's it's a conversation piece. I know in my house growing up, sci-fi and horror movies were just good. You could just have these whole conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and I think and that's fun. And it was fun and it was yeah. in a way that you're talking about the movie, but you're not, right? So, I mean, but everybody agreed. It's like, yeah, we're talking about Alien, sure. All right. I want to thank you for thank talking you. to me. Please check out Spark Science if you ever have time. Spark Science I now. will. And I'll probably see you again at yes. DIY or at AAAS. Yes. Yes. Thank, thank you so much for awesome. talking Awesome. Thank you. Geek Girl Con for the third year in a row and I'm here with Jen and we met her at the exhibit hall. I want you to tell us a little uh, more about the booth that you're at, like the company you work for and the kind of why are you at why are you at Geek Girl Con? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so uh, I run a company, Foxbot Industries. It is uh, me, myself, and I at the moment. Wow, are you the CEO of Foxbot? I am the wow. CEO, founder, and owner. Wow. Which is excellent. And CTO and all of those wonderful things. Give us your full name and title then. Absolutely. So my full name is Jennifer Fox, mm-hmm. but my online handle slash what most people know me as is Jen Foxbot. Okay. Um, so I've been working on building this company for a couple of years. Um, my goal is to uh, empower women and girls in STEM um, and also to show folks that science and technology are accessible, practical, fun. Um, It doesn't only have to be kind of in that very strict realm of 
you know, like, we're going to do a really rigid experiment, but it sometimes can be silly little things, like you can make a hovercraft out of a leaf blower and some wood. Let me take a step back. Yeah. When did you have the idea to start this company, and what does this company actually do? Absolutely. I started my education in physics, and so I wanted to be a cosmologist for a while. So I did, uh, I worked for a dark matter lab when I was an undergrad. Um, where, where was this dark matter lab? Um, Occidental College, okay. the uh, drift, uh, directional recoil identification from tracks experiment. And it's fantastic, it's amazing. I learned so much and I had a great time, but the BP oil spill happened while I was working in that lab. And I realized that I really cared about the environment. I really cared about people, humanity, and our impact on the environment. And let's be real, climate change, the earth is not going anywhere. It's us that are going to go somewhere. So I felt like because I cared, I should contribute to solving some of those problems. Um, So even though I really love physics and it's still a passion of mine, I switched to engineering for grad school. So I went to UCLA, did mechanical engineering. Within that, uh, I designed and built a soil moisture sensor that controls an irrigation system for urban farms. They could conserve more water and also save time dealing with the plants. So that's kind of what opened Pandora's box for me. I was like, wait, you mean like I can actually, there are tools and technology available that I can afford that I can actually solve problems. So I wrote that up as a tutorial. I worked at an office job at an engineering firm for about a year. Then I got a gig with a consulting company so that I could really focus my time on trying to build this company. Thought about this company while you're at this engineering firm just working? Mm-hmm. I I really started with the soil moisture sensor. Um, so I wanted to turn that into a commercial product. I spent about a year doing that, applying to grants. Uh, I got in the top three for this $200,000 grant. They came back and they said, you know, we really like you and we really like your idea, but what we're really looking for is for someone to do this for the rest of their life. This one project for the rest of their life. And I was like, yes, that is not me. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, you know, five years and then I move on to the next thing, right? So actually that was really beneficial because of that I decided, you know what? I'm going to show people how to do these types of things. So I took that project and I wrote it up and I published it under an open source license on Instructables. It is still by far my most popular tutorial, even above the hovercraft, who would have thought? But it's, I mean, it's practical, right? Like a lot of people want to garden, a lot of people want to do urban farming, which I think is super awesome. And so a lot of folks can look at that tutorial and learn how I did it and then actually implement it in uh, in their garden or their urban farm. So then after I started doing the tutorials, I realized, oh, this is what I'm really good at, is making things and showing other people how to make things. So I kind of pivoted after that point. Uh, I reached out to SparkFun Electronics. I was like, hey, I do these things. Would you want to pay me to do these things? And they were like, yes. So I became a hacker in residence for SparkFun Electronics. They are my first major client. And then since then, I've kind of had a few smaller clients here and there, kind of like small-scale, one-on-one tutoring type stuff. Then I also got a contracting gig with the Living Computers Museum, so I do a curriculum development for them, help them teach really cool workshops. Yeah, so that's pretty much where I'm at. And you're you're like messing around with breadboards and stuff. Yep. And sadly, my students do not get to have the same experience I had. We went to the same institution, but over 15 years ago, there was an electronics lab, and we got to make our own breadboards. Like, what? drill the holes. It was like this copper cover, like this, and then you like, 
made the lines and then you put it in acid and it ate everything away. That's so cool. Like that wasn't under Sharpie and it was, yeah. it was amazing. Totally. Looking at your thing made me think of that class. So. Absolutely. Well, and that's the goal, right? Yeah. Is to show people practical, useful tools that they can then go home and actually implement. Right. Yeah, that's really that's awesome. Amazing. Basically, you're telling me you're you're kind of this consultant that mm -hmm. goes around and does these tutorials in various forms, be it yep. workshops or actually going into a company and being like, "Let's do this." Yep, exactly. So, but so, what is your next step, and where do you want your company to grow? Whew, I I've got big dreams. Yeah. So it's good to have big dreams. Yeah, there's a lot of work that I have to do to get to where I want to go. But what I really envision myself doing is doing. Uh, more of training teachers, uh, so teaching teachers to teach the way that I do. I was fortunate enough to be very involved with the Maker Education Initiative, so I learned a lot from them about how can we teach people without giving them step-by-step -step instructions. Maker Education, project-based learning, that type of thing. Um, so that's really what I want to do, and I envision having like a minion, minions of teachers like going around the country and teaching these types of project-based learning workshops showing folks how to you know basically learn how to teach themselves complicated concepts like science and tech how to uh, read technical documents how to think critically how to problem solve even just beyond stem teaching folks like super important life skills failure is okay mistakes are good as long as you acknowledge them and learn from them that's very important I think it really helps develop you as a person and gives you kind of more open view of the world you're I mean everything about what you do is I know you said it's not just sciencey but it seems like there's a lot of science involved too but when we're here at the geek girl con like what's your like one or two things that you fall back on to get kids really interested in science like, one thing that I've really noticed with kids and adults alike is that there tends to be this uh, inherent fear that they'll do something wrong that's what I'm really trying to eliminate so one of my approaches is to gain gamify science and tech. I kind of say that I like to trick people into learning. So that's kind of the whole concept behind the breadboarding game. You come in because it's a fun, kind of cartoony game that you're like, hey, what is this? This looks fun, because it is fun. And then all of a sudden, you're building circuits. And you're like, oh, I see. Like, you're using the actual tools and components that engineers use to build circuits. Right. And so all of a sudden, like, because instead of being like this academic, like, you must build this circuit exactly how it says on the schematic. It's like, it's giving you more power and more control over the situation. So that kind of opens it up. I like project-based learning because, and doing it outside as a workshop because I'm not grading them. And I remind students a lot of, of that all the time, like, hey, I'm not grading you. It's okay if it doesn't work. Like, this is your project. It should be something that you have control over. You need to build it so that you feel like empowered by it and that you like it. It's your project. So empowering them to take control and ownership over their work. It's so beautiful what you just said. I grade my students. I mean, you, it's, you know, it's the system. And, and honestly, like, with physics and, like, science and tech at a certain point, like, there is a right answer and there's a wrong answer. At a certain point. Yeah, you yeah. know, so... And also, if you're going to do, like, if you're going to go and work for Boeing or NASA, like, yeah. yes, I would like you to, I would like those engineers to know what they're doing because yeah. I don't want to fly in a plane that's going to fall apart. Right. But thank but, you so much for yeah. talking to us. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening to Spark Science. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com or kmre.org and click on the podcast link. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE, Spark Radio, and Western Washington University. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Today's episode was recorded on location in Seattle, Washington. Our producer today is Natalie Moore. The engineers for today's show are Andrew Norton and Tori Hiley. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Blackalicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc. When I rap, you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Right, uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Dallas whistle, Dallas, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.